we are in um, kind of a rarity for the way that we do our preaching calendar around here. We have a, there's a standalone Sunday, so we're in the series in the book of Acts, and usually we just will continue to work through that um, series and through that book, chapter by chapter, verse by verse, but there's a kind of a, a spot that was open, and I get the chance to stand in that spot this morning, so really happy about that. I will confess, uh, there is a there's a kind of a tension and sometimes a little bit of a temptation when you have a standalone message like this that you just kind of want to pull something out that either you've done before, you're really familiar with before, uh, and that's kind of like a crowd pleaser kind of message. You're like, this is one that everybody will like and they'll just be really happy that they went to church today. Um, today's not one of those days for you. I'm sorry. Um, there's a quote I read recently. It said, being a pastor who satisfies congregations is one of the easiest jobs in the world if we are content to satisfy congregations. And, and this, this passage we're going to look at this morning, um, one, God, it's just been kind of all over me lately, which is why you're getting it today. Um, but Isaiah 58 is a word that God gave to the nation of Israel, and they didn't want to hear it. And it's been a word that I think God's given the church, and a lot of times they haven't wanted to receive it either. But if, if we can, church, it is, it's a, it is a life-giving word um, to live out what the Word of God instructs. So let's, um, let's pray. Let's pray for help. Um, pray for me. I'm going to pray for you. Pray for all of us uh, that we would have ears to hear, um, that we would not just be what the, what the Scripture talks about, people who just hear the Word but they don't do anything about it. So we don't want to be that either. Um, but we really want to ask just the Spirit of God to teach us uh, this morning and uh, really just kind of cut right to our hearts this morning. So let's, let's pray and ask that. Father God, um, what we just sang this morning is exactly what we pray. We, we pray for a revival. God, when I, when I wake up this morning and I check the news feed on my phone and it's all about wars and rumors of wars, God, when I think about all of those who have been affected by Hurricane Harvey, and God, just the, the, the tragedy and the struggle and the, and the pain. Um, God, we're, we're, we're praying for you to revive us as a church. God, that we would go um, to the hard places. God, that we would, would take a message of hope, God, to those who are hopeless. God, today we wake up in our own beds and we get to go to our closets and pick out our own clothes some of us driving our own vehicles to this beautiful building that you've given us that has electricity and the temperature is controlled, the lights are on. And God, so we're mindful of and pray for mercy for those who did not enjoy that this morning. God, we um, now open your word and your word says about it that when it goes out, it doesn't return void. And so God, I am leaning on and depending on that promise. Holy Spirit, I'm asking you to move with freedom and to control me um, and to teach us and to illuminate the scriptures this morning. God, I just pray that what we read about this morning, God, would be our reputation, that it would be true about us as a church, as your church. Jesus, we love you. It's in your name we pray. Amen. We say around here that all of life is all for Jesus, and that's not because we feel like we have to work to impress him, um, but it's because we love him. 
and we want to be like him, which means, if, if that's true, which means we need to know what he is like. So we need to know what is important to God. And I believe when we get to this passage um, here in Isaiah chapter 58, we see clearly what is important to God. I think this just gives us insight of, of a a look, a vantage point into the, the heart of God. So let me read Isaiah chapter 58, verses 1 through 11. Shout it aloud, do not hold back. Raise your voice like a trumpet. Declare to my people their rebellion and to the descendants of Jacob their sins. For day after day they seek me out and they seem eager to know my ways as if they were a nation that does what is right. And has not forsaken the commands of its God. They ask me for just decisions and seem eager for God to come near them. This is what the people say. Why have we fasted, they say, and you've not seen it? Why have we humbled ourselves and you've not noticed? Yet on the day of your fasting, you do as you please and exploit all your workers. Your fasting ends in quarreling and strife and in striking each other with wicked fists. You cannot fast as you do today and expect your voice to be heard on high. Is this the kind of fast I have chosen? Only a day for people to humble themselves? Is it only for bowing one's head like a reed and for lying in sackcloth and ashes? Is that what you call a fast? A day acceptable to the Lord? God says, is this not the kind of fasting I have chosen? To loose the chains of injustice and untie the cords of the yoke and to set the oppressed free and to break every yoke. Is it not to share your food with the hungry and to provide the poor wanderer with shelter? When you see the naked, to clothe them, and not to turn away from your own flesh and blood. And then your light will break forth like the dawn, and your healing will appear quickly. Then your righteousness will go before you, and the glory of the Lord will be your rear guard. Then you will call, and the Lord will answer, and you will cry for help, and he will say, here am I. If you do away with the yoke of oppression, with the pointing finger and malicious talk, and if you spend yourselves in behalf of the hungry and satisfy the needs of the oppressed, then your light will rise in the darkness and your night will become like the noonday. The Lord will guide you always. He will satisfy your needs in a sun-scorched land and will strengthen your frame. You will be like a well-watered garden and like a spring whose waters never fail. Um, I have, I've, I've read quite a bit just about this and have really been, kind of been steeped in this lately. Um, and I want to give you two resources that, that I have used um, and will show up a ton in this sermon. Um, so the, the, They've heavily influenced just me and heavily influenced what you're going to hear this morning. Um, one is a book by Tim Keller called Generous Justice. It's been extremely influential. Um, and then also another is a book uh, called The Dangerous Act of Loving Your Neighbor by a, a guy named Mark Laberton. So um, like I said, those resources have been really fundamental in, in shaping me um, and also shaping what you're going to hear this morning, so lest you think I'm smarter than I am. Here's what happens in um, Isaiah chapter 58. Israel at this time is extremely confident in their worship, and they should be because to them, God has revealed his name. He's revealed his identity. He has given them the law. He's given them every possible gift. He even gave them a temple. He gave them this special building with special people inside, with special rituals and things that they were supposed to be doing. So they are set up for the very best possible worship. If there's anything that Israel can be hanging their hat on, anything that they should be known for, it's their worship. Except God comes and says... I hate your worship. 
In, in verse 2, God's describing a group of people who day after day they seek me out. And when the Hebrew scriptures talk about seeking out, it's talking about worship. They're talking about going to the temple, the sacrificial system, the prayers, the tithes. It's describing a diligent people. I mean, the, the passage says, look, they, they are passionate. They seek me diligently. They're passionate to know my laws. They want to know how to live. They want to keep the Ten Commandments. They are personally moral. They want to fulfill all the worship ordinances. But then their attitude reveals itself in verse 3 because they say, God, why are we fasting? Why are we humbling ourselves? Why are we doing all of this stuff? Because we're not getting what we want from you. You're you're not answering our, our, our prayers. You don't seem to notice when we're doing all of these things. And the way that God responds to them is disrupting. At least it should be to us. Because what was happening here is that the nation of Israel, they were experiencing the pretense of worship, but not the reality of worship. And he essentially says to them, let me tell you what a fast is. Let me tell you what worship is. Let me tell you what it really means to seek me. Because what you claim about me doesn't show up in your life. And God says, why would I find your fasting important if it leads to a life that doesn't look like my life? And if your worship is only about you, then your worship is bankrupt. In verses 5 and 7, God says this. He says, the the, the fast that I choose, is is it not to loose the chains of injustice, to untie the cords of the yoke, and to set the oppressed free? Is not the fast I choose to share your food with the hungry, to provide the poor wanderer with shelter, to see the naked and clothe him? And church, we have to wrestle with that this morning. Is worship for you about becoming more uh, like the Jesus you praise, or is it about your particular appetite? Is worship for you about your particular preference, your particular itch being scratched? Because God says to them, and I believe he says to us this morning, don't say my name with no interest in who I am. Don't live a life of superficial spirituality without any interest in living out what is at the core of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, if we want to really get at the gist of what God is saying here in Isaiah 58, we have to turn over to Matthew chapter 25. So just turn to the right to the Gospel of Matthew in the New Testament. Matthew chapter 25, because Jesus is speaking there. And he not only draws on this passage in Isaiah 58, but he also draws on what's said throughout the Old Testament in places like the book of Proverbs, where chapter 19, verse 17 says, If you give to the poor, you give to the Lord. And in Matthew chapter 25, verse 31 through 46, Jesus is describing two sets of people. On one side, he has the people who are saved, and on the other side, he has the people who are lost. Look at, look at verse 31 in Matthew chapter 25. This is Jesus speaking here. He says, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne and all the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. And then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. Verse 35, For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you came to visit me. And then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go visit you? 
verse 40, and the king will reply, truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. And then he'll say to those on his left, depart from me, you who are cursed into the eternal fire prepared for the devils and angels, for I was hungry and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger and you did not invite me and I needed clothes and you did not clothe me. I was sick and in prison and you did not look after me. And they will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or needing clothes or sick or in prison and did not help you? And he will reply, truly I tell you, whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me. And then they will go away to eternal punishment but the righteous to eternal life. This is what Jesus says to the lost. If you don't love the poor, if you don't love the hungry, the naked, the poor wanderer, the homeless, if you don't love them, then no matter what you say, you don't love me. And he's teaching us something very important, church, because it's not your mouth that best reflects your love for God, it's your life. Tim Tim Keller says, a deep social conscience And a life poured out in service to others, especially the poor, is the inevitable sign of real faith. I love this next line. And justice is the grand symptom of a real relationship with God. If you know him, it will be there. Do you understand that this is at the heart of biblical faith? Do you see the importance of justice? The, The cause of human dignity It's a benchmark of our faith. So why would God say that? Why would God say that that is a a concern for justice is the inevitable sign of a love relationship with him? To understand that, we need to look at the meaning of justice. When we talk about justice in our context, we don't have the same definition as the Bible does because the Bible, when it talks about justice, it's it's evoking this rich concept of of shalom. If you look at verse 7, there's this deliberate paradox that's there. It says, describing justice, is it not to share your food with the hungry and to provide the poor wanderer shelter? And when he's talking about poor wanderer, the word really means stranger. So according to Hebrew commentaries, this was an alien, a person from another country who had come into your country with virtually nothing. It was an immigrant, it was a refugee. But but notice how it describes the refugee at the end of the sentence. It it says, you need to share your food, provide shelter, clothe naked, and not turn away from who? Not turn away from your own flesh and blood. So in this culture, where family meant everything, you were to treat the wanderer as if he was your own flesh and blood— God does something incredible here. He gives the stranger, the refugee, the immigrant, the alien, he gives them the status of family. And now here's the connection between shalom and biblical justice. God created the world to be a a fabric, for everything to be woven, interdependent, um, and and interwoven together. There's a, a theologian, he says this way. He says, the webbing together of God, humans, and all creation in equity, fulfillment, and delight. This is what the Hebrew prophets call shalom. We translate it peace, but in the Bible, shalom means universal flourishing, wholeness, and delight. 
And, and, and here's, a, here's a way to kind of picture this. My, my wife, um, she likes to sew. And she's got this kind of cabinet thing, this piece of furniture. And in it is her sewing machine and scissors and threads and all the sewing stuff, right? Anything you need for sewing. Now, if I go in there and I take all the spools of thread and I just start pulling all the thread off and I make a huge pile of just thread in the, in the floor. Now, have I sewn anything together? No. I've created a mess. I'm going to get killed, right? Sewing happens when when fabric arrives when each one of those threads has been woven over, under, around, and through one another. When when I went to Ethiopia a few years ago, one of our partners, what they do is they rescue kids who have been forced into labor. uh, And boys who have been forced into labor, um, they will set them up with a new loom. They have these handmade looms that they make, and they give them all the materials that they need to make things like scarves and head coverings and sometimes clothing. And and what they do is they set these boys up, and these boys work and create their materials. They create their own product, and then they, uh, this organization has rented a spot for them in the central market, which is kind of like this big flea market right in the middle of the city. And the boys are able to sell those things and save all that money up. And then they're able to hopefully become self-sustaining and start their own business and get out and get an apartment and kind of get on with their life. But as you're watching them, I and I'd never seen anybody work a loom before. And these boys, they're, they're like 13, 14, 15. They're just incredible. And the, the shuttle that goes back and forth uh, that has the thread on it, it, it just kind of goes back and forth and back and forth and back and forth. And what looks like uh, just a bunch of random threads and random raw materials comes out as this beautiful scarf, these, these beautiful fabrics that they're putting together. That is the picture of shalom. And the more interdependent those threads are, the more beautiful they are. The more interwoven those threads are, the stronger and warmer they are. And God has made this world with billions of entities, and he made them to be in a beautiful, harmonious, knitted and webbed together, interdependent relationship with each other. Uh, physically, shalom looks like when your body, when everything in your body is working the way that it's supposed to be, you, you have physical shalom. But when something like cancer happens and your body is now at war with itself, there's a breaking down of physical shalom. In our society, when people who have money, resources, advantages, expertise, and they plunge them into community so it improves neighborhoods and schools and parks, We now have this social shalom. But when those who have all of those advantages hoard all of those things for themselves and they disregard the poor, they disregard those who are disadvantaged, there's now a social breaking of shalom. In our context, when we think about justice, we think in terms of freedom. Justice means that one person can be freed from the confines of of a group. But the Bible has a different trajectory for that justice because biblical justice means an interwovenness, an interdependence, bringing individuals to see that our stuff is not ours. In fact, that's what God says to his people. You've been blessed so that you would be a blessing to others. There's a Hebrew scholar named Bruce Walkey, and he adds perspective to this. And he talks about what it means to be righteous or what it means to be wicked. Listen to what he says. Righteous people deprive themselves for the sake of community. Wicked people see their resources as belonging to them and to them alone. Righteous people see that much of what they have belongs to the community. The wicked say, no, it's all me and it's all for me. 
Read through the Bible, he says, with those definitions of righteous and wicked, and suddenly you're reading a whole new book. So do you see what it means to, be, to do justice? When we, we do justice when we go where the fabric is breaking down. When the weaker members of society are falling through, that's where the interdependence is, is to be happening. In Isaiah chapter 58, justice is depicted as literally serving the poor. That's what it means to do justice. It means that you are taking the threads of your life, your emotions, your time, your body, your passions, your skills, your ability, your expertise, your opportunity, and you're plunging them into the lives of other people through thousands of personal involvements and investments. Biblical justice is an understanding that if it's within my capacity to serve or to care, it's within my responsibility to serve and to care. And, and notice the, the logic that we see in Isaiah chapter 58, because in verse 6, it talks about loosing the chains of injustice, dealing with the oppressed, and then it says to share your food. So in other words, if you don't share what you have, you are unjust. Now, who has a problem with this? The truth is, we all do. We all do. You're, you're, you, we, we all, uh, on some level, have some kind of prejudice where we would say, wait a minute. So you're just telling me that if I, just because I don't share, I, I, I'm unjust? Because what you're describing sounds like welfare. What you're describing sounds like socialism. Well, let, me, let me give you an illustration of how this shows up practically in our world. Um, in this city and in cities all, all over our country, children are growing up in communities where because of their family situation and because of their school, they are functionally illiterate. By the time they're 15, 16, 17 years old, they can't read and they can't write. And when you get to that age and if you can't read and you can't write, you are, you're ruined for the market. You're ruined for any kind of economic or social flourishing. And you're locked in poverty for the rest of your life. And that's happening to hundreds of thousands of kids in, in, in Phoenix. Now why? If, if you take a liberal analysis of it, you'd say, well, it's because of unjust social structures. If you take a conservative analysis of that problem, you'd say, well, because it's a breakdown of the family. And there might be truth on both sides of those. But nobody looks at that problem and says, well, it's the kid's fault. No, no one looks at a six, seven, eight-year-old and, and says, well, well, they just need to get themselves to a better school. No one looks at, at, at the six, seven, eight-year-old and say, well, if they would just pull themselves up by their bootstraps, and they would, they would fix it themselves. My kids growing up in my home have a 300 to 400 times greater chance for economic and social flourishing than the kids in those neighborhoods. That's just one example of the way in which the fabric of this world, the shalom of this world is broken. And if I don't share the advantages that this unjust world has dealt me, that in itself is unjust. Because these kids are being ground down by a structure so it's not enough to just to do individual charity. You have to address the social structure. Isaiah doesn't talk about loosening the yoke, but about breaking it. And a yoke, of course, is something that you put on an ox or an animal. It's, it's a controlling uh, device, restraining device that limits an animal's range of motion. So for God to talk about unjust situations like families and schools that produce illiterate kids, that's a structure. That's a yoke. These kids are being ground down by that yoke. And this passage then, it doesn't simply say, we'll just go get all those kids out of those neighborhoods and out of those schools. No, it tells us, church, you go change the schools. You break the yoke in those neighborhoods. You have to address the social structures. That's what it says. 
Mark Laberton, he says this, the primary Christian confession of faith that Jesus is Lord, which if you're a follower of Jesus, if you're a Christian this morning, that's your primary confession, that Jesus is Lord. Well, that means that the reign of Jesus over all things recasts power in any and all places. Injustice at its core always involves the abuse of power, and justice is the right ordering of power. The first and second commandments call God's people to practice using their life's power to do two central things, and you know them, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and to love your neighbor as yourselves. And if we actually seek to do this, it changes our understanding of why and how power and injustice matter, and it compels us to live lives and to reorder power according to the loving and recreating reign of Jesus Christ. The crisis of Charlottesville is a crisis of worship, and it permeates the white church in America because of a disordered love and a disordered power because the church for far too long has always been about itself. And I can stand up here and I can say, well, I'm not a white nationalist. I'm not a white supremacist. So I'm not the issue. I'm not the problem. But I am a white educated male with a certain degree of privileges and a certain degree of power. And if I'm not a Christian, I could just look at that and I could say, well, you know what? I'm lucky. I, I have done what Warren Buffett uh, says. I've won the ovarian lottery. But if I am a Christian and I want to look at a passage like Isaiah 58 and take it seriously and, and, and I want to take the gospel seriously and I want to take the writing of the Apostle Paul seriously and I want to take the life of Jesus seriously, I want to be a faithful worshiper then in light of all of that, my faithful worship will recalibrate everything about my social identity and my use of power and my location and how I take responsibility for the way that I use my race and my privilege. And church, this is not designed to make us just simply feel guilty, but it is to remind us of the responsibility that we have as followers of Jesus Christ to be a justice people. As we end, I want to go back to the question that we started with. So why would Jesus say, if you, love, if you have a love relationship with me, you'll, you'll care for the poor? Of all the things that he could have said, why does he say that? When you look at Matthew chapter 25 or Isaiah 58, it's, it's, it's easy for us to miss the point. And a lot of times we do. Because we can look at it and say, okay, we've got God, Jesus, and Isaiah here. And what they're saying is they're saying, okay, you guys got your worship ordinances. You got that down. And you got your personal morality. You got that down. But you don't have the social justice. And we could just say, oh, well, okay, well, I just needed to add one more thing to my list. And if I just do that, if I just kind of complete my list, well, then God will hear my prayers. Then God will listen. Then God will do for me what I want him to do. And if that's the way that you approach a message like this, if that's the way that you approach this scripture, that you just need to add one more thing to your list so that God will do for you what you want him to do, you're completely missing it. Because Isaiah 58 is a critique of that kind of religion. It's a critique of the people in verses 2 and 3 who are trying to put pressure on God, who are saying, look, we've lived this good life. You owe us. And the reason that there's a critique of that is because that kind of thinking does nothing to change the fundamental self-centeredness of the heart. Think about it. If you, if you operate with that mindset, 
You do good to the poor. You live a moral life. You read the Bible. You pray. You're not doing it for God's sake. You're doing it for your sake. You're not doing it for the poor's sake. You're doing it for you. You're being good out of absolute self-absorption, and that doesn't change a thing because that doesn't change the heart at all. Okay, so how do we get to a place? How do I get to a place where I can love God for God's sake? Or how do I get to a place where I can love the poor for the, for the poor's sake and for God's sake? You have to experience the beauty of it. That's what changes our heart, when we experience the beauty of it. Let me, let me explain. When Jesus says, if you love the poor, you love me. When the proverb says, if you lend to the poor, you lend me. If you insult the poor, you insult me. What's that saying? It's saying that God identifies with the poor. Not just that he feels sorry for them. Not just that he empathizes with them. It goes much deeper. God identifies with the poor. In Christianity, the gospel of Jesus Christ explains just how far God went to identify the poor. When God came to earth in the form of Jesus, he was born in a feeding trough. When his parents took him to get a circumcision, their offering was two pigeons. It's the lowest acceptable offering for people in their economic position. Jesus was essentially homeless. He said himself, foxes have holes, birds have nests. The Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. He rode into town on a borrowed donkey. He ate his last meal in a borrowed room. He was murdered and buried in a borrowed tomb. Jesus was poor. And more than that, he was a victim of injustice. James Boyce, who was a pastor in Philadelphia, he says that the rest of Jesus, the interrogation, the lack of defensive counsel, the physical abuse, everything about his arrest and trial was a miscarriage of justice. So here's what this means. Jesus Christ literally became one of the oppressed. He literally went under the yoke. And now because of all that, he says, I... Who deserved vindication got condemnation so that you, the human beings who have messed up this world, who have rebelled against a holy God, who deserve condemnation, you can get justice and pardon. And what Jesus Christ did is he plunged himself into our lives. He took all the threads of his glory at infinite cost to himself and threaded himself into our lives, saving us from falling through. That is the beauty that will free you from the prison of your own fear or your own pride or your own self-centeredness. The gift of the gospel is being delivered from the illusion that I am at the center of my own world. Because what does our worship do, when, especially when we come together? It reminds us that you and I are not God. It reminds us that God is God, that there is only one center, and it is not you and it is not me. Worship is the work of heart realignment. Our corporate worship, when we come together and we make a noise in here, we study the scriptures, when we partake in communion like we will in a moment, it helps us to get our hearts and our minds straight about who God is and what he has done and what he desires to see happen in the world. It is a recalibrating and a recentering of our lives around a beautiful truth that graciously evicts us from the throne of our own heart. And once we get clarity on that, church, once that becomes crystal clear for us, we can then embrace the implications of that for our lives. Worship recreates us. It recreates us so we can reflect the beauty, love, mercy, and justice of God in the world. And when you see what he has done for you, when you stare and peer and, and reflect on what he has done for you, your fear is gone. He's already died for you. What is there to be afraid of? When you see what he has done for you, your pride dissipates. He had to die for you. So what else are you but a sinner? 
What makes you think that his grace, what makes you think that his favor, what makes you think that his blessing stops with you? And I know so often when we encounter the poor, the outcast, the marginalized, the one that everybody else looks past, when we encounter them, we, we have these thoughts like, well, they're probably on drugs. And if I give them money, they're just going to use that money to go buy more booze or to go buy more drugs. It's probably a scam. They're probably not even homeless. I mean, if you can stand there and hold that sign all day, you can go get a job. They're probably criminals. They're here illegally. They shouldn't be here. Maybe. Maybe those things are true. But let me ask you this. Do you weep for them? Do you cry out to God for them on their behalf? When you see them in your heart, are you stirred to see broken and distorted image bearers of God Almighty restored and reconciled. Because when you stand before God, he will not care about what you thought about them when you see the poor. He will care about how you felt about them when you saw them. Because how you feel about the poor, the outcast, the marginalized, is how you feel about him. And if you say you love God and you don't love the poor and you don't love the least of these, it turns out you don't love God's. In other words, your faith is a fiction. But when the fear and the pride go away, and when all we can see is the beauty of what he has done, And we can love him just because he's beautiful. Because all he's given me, I don't have to try to earn anything. I don't don't have to do anything to get anything. I just want him. I can love him for him. I, I can love the poor for the poor's sake. I can love God for God's sake. That's the beauty that changes your heart. And church, this is so important for us. Because God's love for us in Christ makes our love for the poor an act of hope in the world. And if there was ever a time when the message of hope needed to go to the hopeless. It's now. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for your word this morning. God, your word is surgical. It says that. And God, I think today we're experiencing that. God, it it cuts right at the core of who we are. And God, by your mercy and by your grace, you expose our idolatry. You expose places of false worship. God, you expose behaviors and attitudes, God, that are just contrary to who you are. And God, um, you're gracious to do that through your word and by your spirit. God, now as we come to this moment of communion, God, a a very tangible way for us to remember the, the person of Jesus Christ his life, his ministry, his sacrifice, his death, his power over Satan and sin, his promise to restore all things, to make everything sad, untrue. (coughs) God, we just, we pray for your mercy. We pray for your help. And we pray that we would be this kind of church. It's in your name we pray. Amen.